Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing, plus all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. Today, our guest is Chris Bombardier, who is a remarkable guy in a number of ways. On January 6, 2018, Chris became the first person with hemophilia to complete all seven summits. And then tomorrow, August 18th, a film comes out that tells Chris's story and focuses in on his attempt to summit Mount Everest. The film is called Bombardier Blood, and to call the film inspiring is an understatement, for sure. And these days, Chris is the executive director of the organization Save One Life, whose mission is to improve the quality of life and future for people with bleeding disorders in developing countries. And so right now in this conversation, you get to be introduced to a wonderful guy named Chris. You get to learn more about hemophilia and better understand the experience of those who have the condition. You get to learn more about the work of Save One Life. And then tomorrow, you get to go watch Bombardier Blood and get introduced to Crazy Uncle Dave. Shout out to Crazy Uncle Dave, by the way, and a whole slew of other wonderful people. And so for all of these reasons, I am very happy to now be able to share this conversation with you. And so with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Chris Bombardier. Well, Chris, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing well today. Uh, and I'm currently in Salem, Massachusetts, where I live now, which is a pretty cool little town. Nice. And tell us a little bit about what brought you to Massachusetts. And I guess we'll start here. You're a kid from Colorado, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Colorado, lived there my whole life. I went to college in Nebraska, came back to Colorado and uh, yeah, and ended up in Massachusetts recently, like uh, almost two years ago to work for an organization called Save One Life, which helps people with bleeding disorders in developing countries, uh, which is my passion. And now I'm the executive director of that organization, which is super sweet. Uh, <laughs> and I love that job. It's just cool. <laughs> Back, I guess, when you were a kid growing up in Colorado, two things I guess we can start with. I mean, one, you developed fairly early on, I guess, a passion for baseball. But at that point, you were already aware that you had the condition of hemophilia, right? Talk to us a little bit about like when you first came to learn that you had hemophilia, yeah, you know, the funny thing is I I've always known I've had hemophilia, so I don't remember not like being aware of hemophilia. Okay. So I was diagnosed when I was born. Um so it's it's a X-linked uh genetic disorder, so that means it's passed down generally uh from a mother to a son. Um so my mom actually had two uncles with hemophilia that both passed away before I was born, but she knew like if she had had a a son that she was supposed to have them tested for hemophilia. But she didn't really know what that meant. Um, so, you know, I have an older brother who they they tested him, no hemophilia, you know, and then I came along, tested me and my mom was like super confident that I wasn't going to have hemophilia. And then it came back and she was like, oh, man, what does that mean now? Um, so that was pretty shocking to her. Um, and then since both my uncles had passed away, yeah. she didn't really have anybody to ask questions about it or what 
what that meant. So, um, but fortunately there was a great, uh, hemophilia treatment center in Colorado that helped guide her and my parents along this journey and, and me. Um, so yeah, I've always known I had hemophilia, which is kind of weird. Uh, just always been a part of me, <laughs> I guess, literally too. <laughs> so I just finished watching recently this film that is coming out soon called Bombardier Blood. And I think this gets released on August 18th on a bunch of different digital platforms. But one of the funny things, there was there was many, many interesting things going on in this film. But fun fact, I kind of have a fear of baseballs. Like, I don't <laughs> like a sport where people are throwing rocks at me. And so all my all my friends know this about me. Sharks and baseballs. Those are like my two, those are like my two fears in the world. And uh so I'm watching this film about you, a hemophiliac who develops this like obsession with baseball. And I'm like, yeah. no, 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 Chris. Baseballs are dangerous <laughs> even if you're not a hemophiliac. And so um, yeah, and then I just felt like one, I felt terrible for your parents and your poor mom. <laughs> but talk yeah. a little talk a little bit about this development. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, so I was always uh, just super active kid, like running around doing crazy stuff, you know, uh, like just would never slow down. Right. Uh, and it's actually really ironic. My brother is older brother who doesn't have hemophilia is like way more mellow, like <laughs> more academic, you know, musically interested. So it's kind of funny that, you know, we should have had, you know, switch personalities. Right. But yeah, you know, uh, my parents introduced me into like T-ball, you know, and as four. And I think it was a way to like, you know, put me in a sport that like, especially at T-ball, like, you know, the risk is less than like soccer, you know, you know, some sort of contact is minimal there. And I think they were just like, okay, he's crazy active. We'll put him in this. Um, and you know, we'll see where that goes. And I don't think they were counting on me becoming like literally obsessed with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like every, you know, everything I thought about was about baseball. Um, so I think as I got older, you know, and then the ball started coming faster, you know, I, I don't, yeah. It might may not might not have been the best idea, but like at that point, I was like so into it they couldn't take it away from me. Yeah. So they just we just had to kind of figure it out. My mom, you know, I don't. I guess she might not love that I say this, but she blames me for all her gray hair, <laughs> she, she <laughs> which is should. totally fair. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Just totally fair. But yeah, like you know, as I grow up, like we just had to figure out how to play baseball with this condition, and like you know, um, as the ball started coming faster, I had to learn how to like take my medicine before games to, you know, hopefully if I did get hit, you know, it wouldn't be too bad. And, you know, as baseball progressed, you know, I just had to get more and more like on top of treatment, which is tough, which is tough, you know, especially like, I don't love needles and that's how you take your medicine, which is super ironic. <laughs> so th- this is, this is definitely one of the funniest elements of the film. Like I, I just <laughs> confess, right. My two big fears in the world, sharks and baseballs, you're yeah. a hemophiliac who's afraid of needles. This is yeah, tough. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. It's it's it sucks. <laughs> like really, like couldn't have been the worst like fear to have needles. But yeah, it's 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 thing. It's thing. <laughs> huh. So you know, we should probably back up for a second and just talk a yeah. little bit more about hemophilia. And so, you know, why don't you tell us first of all what is this condition and like how many people around the world have it yeah so the the condition it's it's a genetic bleeding disorder so essentially i have a mutation on a chromosome that uh 
it makes it so my body doesn't produce this protein that helps your blood clot um, is the simple explanation to it. Um, so, you know, a lot of people think like, okay, so if, does that mean if you get a paper cut, you're going to bleed to death? Um, which I've heard many, many times. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Hey, I'm 35. I've gotten paper cuts. I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's more like internal bleeding into joints, muscles. Um, like, you know, the big things to worry about are like intracranial hemorrhages and things like that. And so, uh, it is very rare. So there's only about 20,000 people in the U S with hemophilia, um, and then around the world, it's estimated that there should be about 400,000 people with hemophilia, but um, only about 180,000 of them have been di- diagnosed with the condition. So, um, uh, you know, that just shows that diagnostic capabilities are really limited uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so mostly in developed countries, diagnosis is decent, but, you know, in developing countries, it's non-existent or very, very limited. So... Um, but yeah, it's still very rare. Yeah. I have to confess, watching this film in the first kind of 20 minutes or so, it felt a little bit like a horror movie to me. I mean, honestly, those of us who don't have hemophilia, I think we, you know, and especially if we're, you know, relatively fit people that are lead an active lifestyle, you know, we're used to like crashing our mountain bikes, right? Or like, jumping off something and crashing on a pair of skis or like skateboarders, right? Or falling all the time. Well, when you start thinking about these things through the lens of somebody who has hemophilia, I honestly started thinking about this a little bit. You know, we see these horror movies, right? Where Freddy Krueger or the, the villains or the boogeyman is kind of chasing you. And this, frankly, there's an element where like you get hit with a baseball that's an inside. You you can't escape that villain. That villain lives inside. Yeah. You know, I've got all these friends with like two-year-olds now, two and three-year-olds, and these kids <laughs> are just falling over all the time, right? And falling downstairs yeah. and the rest. And I just think it really helped give a, I think, deep appreciation, one, for parents, but also yeah. for people with hemophilia who it's like, man, something that might be, you know, a, a relatively minor fall for somebody else, things can get dramatic real fast. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and it's something that lingers in the back of your head all the time, you know, um, you know, I, I, I think it's something that, you know, I've become more recently aware of that it, you know, that it has, it has been lingering in the back of my mind, my whole life of like, you know, thinking about the consequences of your actions um, because you know what that consequence is likely going to be, especially like, you know, mountain biking or skiing or playing baseball, you know, if you get hit by a pitch, you know what it, what it is. Um, but I think like the, the passion for doing those activities always outweighed, like mm-hmm. knowing what that consequence was. And like, thankfully we have medicine here that like can, you know, prevent the worst case scenarios generally. Right. Um, I've still ended up with bleeds when I've had really bad crashes and got hit by a baseball real hard. Um, and, but I just knew like that I kind of accepted that as a part of the consequence, right. Um, to be able to participate in the things that I love to do. And, um, but I, I've never heard that interpretation of like, like a horror movie, but it is like this thing that like sits in the back of your brain. Um, and I think it's also this thing that, you know, I struggled with, with, uh, some depression and anxiety because of, um, mm-hmm. because it was this thing lingering there, like, 
and and sometimes prevented me from getting to do the things I loved and made me feel different, um, which was really hard, uh, mm-hmm. especially as a kid growing up when you desperately don't want to feel different. Right. <laughs> all you, all um, you want to do is fit in and play hard, right? And yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And you didn't want to like tell your friends like, be careful around me. Like I never said that because I didn't want to feel different. And I ended up in with some pretty bad bleeding episodes because I refused to like, you know, tell my friends that they had to be careful. You know, I I wanted to hide it. I wanted to be like them, um, which was tough. So I'd be interested to have you tell us a little bit more. How do we, how do I say this? If you think there are some generalizations, kind of psychological generalizations that hold true sort of for many hemophiliacs, right? On the one hand, you, you've already said, well, a couple of them in terms of your own experience, but for, for those of us who maybe haven't spent much time thinking about this or don't know uh, hemophiliacs, you know, you talked a bit about like not wanting to feel different or be a part. So that manifested itself in one way that like you wouldn't tell people to be yeah. careful around you, even while they, you probably damn well should have, right? Or yeah. <laughs> I guess another component is, is it you think a common experience where people with hemophilia are often being told by others, like you can't participate? Like how how does this go? Help us understand this space. Yeah, I think, I think there is, you know, both of those things are true. Um, you know, I think I was lucky that my doctors here or in Colorado were very open to letting me like try things, um, without just saying no flat out. Uh, but there are things that they would say no to like football, like they're like, you can't play that. You're not doing that. Um, and I think a lot of places around the U S even, um, physicians and nurses and, and, you know, parents, aren't as open to having, you know, kids try, try baseball or, you know, other sports. Um, and so kids aren't allowed to do that. And it, you know, that they, they do get put in a bubble and, you know, I I can't say if it's right or wrong, but, um, you know, uh, that's a choice that they get to make, but, you know, um, that does have a huge impact on you when you, you are told no and you can't do things and it makes you feel less than, you know, um, like you're not good enough or you're not good enough to keep up with people. And, Um, you know, it's, it's hard to feel like that. And, uh, you know, luckily I didn't, I I wasn't told no a lot, but, um, I did sense that, you know, especially playing baseball in college, trying to keep up with people that don't have a bleeding disorder. (laughs) It was hard, you know, um, they'd get hit by a pitch and they'd be fine. You know, they might have a bruise. I'd get hit by a pitch and it would like swell up and I'd have to miss a game or something. And, um, it just always felt like so defeating that like, ah, man, if I just didn't have this thing, I could keep up easier. Um, and I don't think since I've had it my whole life, I don't think I recognized the, the mental, uh, challenges that it presented. Cause it was just always there. Um, it wasn't like they came out of nowhere. It was just this constant, um, struggle, I guess you'd call it. Um, and actually I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like, I really figured out a way to like deal with that until, recently when I connected with other people with hemophilia and like had a connection of like, Oh, you know what that struggles like too. Mm-hmm. Um, and like finally accepted that like, okay, I do have hemophilia and it sucks sometimes and it's hard. Um, but you know, I've got to meet all these cool people. I have this connection to this community that is super special. And, um, there, it doesn't mean that there's not days that I wish I didn't have it, but <laughs> you know, it makes it easier. 
First of all, again, given my stated fears, I can't believe you played college baseball. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> um, so one, that's wild. But two, I, I am curious. I mean, you're talking about getting hit by a pitch and we're going to, I don't know whether we do it now or in a minute, I do want to talk a bit about factor. Yeah. But what were you being told if you did get hit hard with a fastball? Was it a possibility? Like if that happened to you, did you need to be wondering this could get wildly serious? This could get real bad or even fatal? Or is it like, no, that was really not quite in the realm of concern, but it it was going to mean like swelling up in a big way or dealing with sort of non-lethal injuries? Yeah, yeah. I never had like a fear of fatal stuff, especially with baseball. Um, maybe I should have. I don't know. <laughs> you should have. <laughs> but even just like all of us should. I mean, it's they're terrifying. They're throwing rocks they at terrifying. you. Anyway, I'll stop with my public service announcements. <laughs> um, but you know, so I'd always try to take my medicine before before a game, so that like if I did get just you know drilled with a pitch, I wouldn't worry that it got out of control. Um, but, you know, it's funny, like, you know, if I did get hit real solid with a pitch, I can f- generally feel if the medicine isn't enough, like, um, that that I might need to take more more of that medicine to get it to, to stop. It's it's this really weird sensation. It's hard to describe, but it's, it's like this warm kind of pressure that starts to build. And when it doesn't stop uh, and it keeps getting build- like building, I'm like, ah, I need to take it. So it's, it's like a slow thing. It's not that I necessarily plead faster than people. It's um, just longer. So, you know, I'd get hit and be like, all right, let's see if that is going to get worse. And then if I start feeling it get worse, I'm like, all right, I need to take more medicine. So I might like be in the dugout, like trying to take another dose of my medicine in the dugout during the game, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, trying to, you know, stick a needle in my arm while a game's going on. But yeah, it was it was tough. Um, and I ended up with a couple really bad bleeds from baseball where, you know, I was struggling with my taking my medicine and not wanting to admit when something was going wrong. And I didn't take it quick enough and ended up with some really painful, awful bleeds. Um, but I, I learned a lot from those experiences too, <laughs> to yeah. not do that again and be on top of the, those, those treatments before it gets too bad. Now there's some other activities that you have previously participated in. I'm not sure if you do today, but <laughs> the, in this film, I mean, it shows you skiing and yep. climbing and ice climbing and then your poor mom mentions parachuting and then of course we're (laughs) going to talk about your mountaineering stuff you know that that was kind of a trip watching as well you know so baseball you've just given an explanation of like how you were able to kind of mitigate the risks there yeah key point though you keep saying this is when you have your medicine and that's and that's something we'll talk about in a second but in terms of other activities that you were regularly participating growing up or that you're into now, talk a bit about those. Yeah. You know, so after college, you know, I kind of switched gears. Like I, I didn't have baseball anymore, switched into the outdoor world. And, uh, I, I had my uncle who is like kind of my mentor getting into the outdoor world. (laughs) Um, my crazy uncle Dave, crazy (laughs) uncle Dave. Yeah. He's awesome. Um, but you know, when we started doing like, you know, going skiing again is where it started. I started going skiing again with my uncle and he essentially was just like, Hey, 
you know, I know you have hemophilia, you know, you know how to take care of it. Make sure you take care of it before we go out and do stuff. Um, and he was just really open to like, not saying no, like we can't do this cause you have hemophilia. So it was kind of the same as baseball. Like I take, take my medicine before I did these activities. Um, I, you know, if I was skiing, I'd have an extra dose in my backpack in case something happened. Um, you know, wore a helmet just, you know, to protect that kind of area. Um, you know, so I always like trying to think of how to take precautions, um, to make sure I had my medicine on board or could have another dose if I needed it at all times. Um, so always just kind of trying to think a couple steps ahead. And I think the thing that my uncle always stressed too is like, if you're not taking care of yourself outside, um, and preparing, like you could also be putting other people in danger. Um, so he always emphasized that. And I was always just like, really tried to make sure I took my factor, um, you know, when I, you know, to protect myself while I was out there as best as I could, obviously there's instances you can never predict. Um, but even in those situations, I always had more factor with me. Um, and I generally try to teach people, other people I'm with how to give it to me in case like I can't do it for Mm. some reason. Um, so like my wife knows how to do it. My uncle Dave knows how to do it. Uh, some of the people I climb with, they know how to do it too. Um, just in case of one of those crazy circumstances where I couldn't do it myself. Hmm. But so these days in the last like year or two, what, what do you count among your regular activities? If it's not even like a day to day thing, but like, what are you, what are you up? What are you getting up to? Yeah. So now I'm still skiing, uh, East coast skiing now, which is different, different than Colorado skiing. (laughs) Uh, that was a wake up call. Uh, (laughs) I remember I got yelled at one time in Colorado. This is a tangent, but, uh, I was on a chairlift and I was like, man, it's icy out today. Uh And this guy on the chairlift turned to me and he's like, this isn't icy. You don't know icy. And now, now I can say, I know what icy is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, uh, learning, uh, some of the mountains out here, exploring some of the new mountains out here and, uh, just got started getting my mountain bike out again, uh, and checking out some trails out here, which is super fun. And, uh, yeah, just trying to learn some new spaces and it's, it's different than Colorado and like different, uh, feeling, but, uh, super cool and totally beautiful in a different way, which is cool. Hmm. So primarily like skiing and mountain biking. Yeah, I'd say uh, primarily skiing and, uh, just hiking and, and, and yeah, mostly that's all I'm doing mostly now, but mountain biking has been the new summer thing since, uh, the, the pandemic hit. I was like, well, we're gonna be around a lot. So, uh, let's get this bike fixed and, and, and take it out. So that's been cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Let's, I think, take this moment to talk a little bit about factor and tell us what's going on with that. And I guess I'm very curious to what extent does factor bring someone with hemophilia into the realm of like, I mean, I don't know, those of us who don't have hemophilia, like how effective is it or how does this work? The floor is yours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, factor is essentially a, it's a, it's the protein I'm missing essentially, um, in a powder form. And then you also get a vial of diluent. So it's liquid, like essentially sterile water. You mix the two together to, uh, get it ready for infusion. And, um, so it's essentially just replacing the protein and missing in my blood to the normal level. But you know, the half-life of factor is it's very complicated because there's all these different kinds now, <laughs> but it's generally about 18 hours in your blood. So hmm. if you imagine like I took an infusion and that got me to hundred percent correction. So hundred percent, which is normal, right? 
you know, normal people have 50 to 150% factor in their blood at all time. Um, so I would take an infusion and the goal is to get it up into that level, but 18 hours later, half of it's gone. Mm -hmm. So then I'm back down at 50% and then, you know, 18 hours more, I'm at 25%. So it slowly tapers off. So, you know, generally when you're like planning your biggest activity, you try and take that dose right before it. So you're at the highest level you possibly can be. And the farther out from that infusion, the lower the level is, is essentially how it works. So I kind of know based on the medicine I'm taking now, like when I infuse it on this day, this, you know, two days later, I'll be at this level. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I know my specific levels at pretty much all times. Um, so I can guess. And then like, if I'm at a lower level and I get hit a little bit harder, I'm like, okay, I'm not at a very high level. I should take another dose to kind of compensate and and get myself back into the normal level. Hmm. If that makes sense. I just came up with a like <laughs> off the top of my head analogy. So you can tell me like, dude, that's a terrible analogy and give me a better one. But I started thinking a little bit about it's almost like keeping air pressure in a, in a mountain bike tire. Like if say you're normally running a PSI of like 25, it's almost like if, if one wheel set is holding that air pressure for say a week or two, your air pressure isn't going to hold that 25 as well or as long. And that's why hence like break out the bike pump kind of every yeah. day to bring that air pressure level back up. How, how do you like that one? I like that one. Yeah. I haven't thought of it that way, but yeah, it's like <laughs> I have a little hole and it just kind of keeps going away. It's hmm. disappearing. <laughs> and yeah. have you seen much, I mean, you just said there's a bunch of different types of factor now. Has there been much progress in this realm? I mean, the biggest one I'm thinking, given your fear of needles is like how we don't have the factor pill yet. That would like, right. Oh my would... God. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're actually making amazing progress in the last, I would say like 10 years. There's just been these crazy developments. So there's factor that you don't have to take as often. So it lasts longer, um, which is amazing. Mm. So I don't have to take it as often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't have to stick myself with a needle very often. Um, for hemophilia A, which is a different kind of hemophilia, they have a subcutaneous product now. So you don't have to do an intravenous. You're just doing it under your skin like a diabetic. Um, mm -hmm. But it's like once every couple weeks, which is sweet. Hmm. Um, but now they're even doing, it's called gene therapy, um, which is essentially like effectively a cure. Um, wow. So they, it, it's kind of technical, but they essentially like take a virus and they clean out the viral DNA in it and they put the DNA for hemophilia uh, or that factor um, uh, and kind of like infect you with this virus. <laughs> so it implants the DNA of for that factor into your body so that your body will start making it. Wow. It's really fascinating. It's in clinical trials right now. So nothing's out yet, but I mean, that's huge progress. So like they don't know how long it'll last either if it's five, 10 years, but effectively it could cure you for maybe five, 10 years, maybe longer. But yeah, they're making huge strides, which is really exciting and, and cool. So who knows in a couple of years, maybe I don't have hemophilia. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Yeah. But the reality, and this is something that, you know, is addressed in, in your film. Uh, there's a lot of people around the world that don't have access to factor or, or at least quick access to factor. Right. And yeah. in which case we're back into kind of that nightmare scenario 
right? Like everything you've said about your story has always actually been like, oh, if I got hit by a pitch, I could go to the dugout and like give myself another infusion. But talk yeah. a little bit about this, right? Because this is actually our present reality. Those folks with hemophilia who don't have quick access. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 super lucky. I was born where I am. To be honest, like I wouldn't, I I probably would be dead if I was born in another country uh, that didn't have access. You know, um, so you know, seventy five percent of the world's population with hemophilia don't have access to factor or very very limited. You know, it's really just developed countries that have access because the medication super expensive. Um, so, you know, in a country like Nepal, where Everest is, you know, 50% of people die before the age of 10 because of hemophilia. And it's, that's mostly an estimate because um, they don't even know where, where those patients are. You know, they, they aren't being diagnosed because the country doesn't have the capability. And so, you know, it's just a completely different reality. Things are improving in some countries, but it's super limited. And, you know, they're not prophylactically treating for, you know, to prevent bleeding. They are hopefully getting a dose when they have a horrible bleed, huh. a life-threatening bleed, they're yeah. hopefully getting factor, you know, and if they're not, you know, if it's a minor bleed or, you know, something that isn't life-threatening, they're laying down, they probably don't, some of them don't have ice to even ice it, you know, so they're literally just uh, kind of gotten it, gotten through it, which is just tough, to, really tough to see. Huh. So this might be a good time to talk about the film more yeah. specifically. Well, actually, I, I don't want to put, I don't want to say it. I want to hear, I want to hear how you talk about this. You get this idea for a project. Yeah. So, you know, I hanging out with my crazy uncle Dave in the mountains. <laughs> we, he, he starts telling me stories about climbing Denali back in the nineties. Amazing stories. He gets in my head of like the seven summits. Wouldn't that be cool to try that? You know? And then in, but we didn't like ever finalize on the plan. We started talking about Aconcagua and like, you know, it was just I, an idea. And then I got the opportunity to travel to Kenya in 2011. And I was like, sweet. Kilimanjaro is really close to Kenya in Tanzania. Let's, let's do it. Let's add that onto the trip. So I invite Dave to come. But on that trip, we were going to set up a hemophilia lab and clinic. When we landed, that was like the first moment, not the first moment, but it really was an eye-opening experience to what hemophilia looked like in places without access to care. You know, there was literally a, a young boy there that was like struggling to live. And I was just like, it just changed my whole perspective on life, you know? And then we go and climb Kilimanjaro after that experience. And I just had this like immense amount of guilt that I was getting to go climb this mountain and people with the same condition are just struggling to live. And I was just like, how can I translate this new love I have for climbing and being outdoors into something that like actually helps other people and brings awareness to this. And that's when I kind of set my sights on the seven summits and like, I wanted to do this anyway, but I want to do it now to raise awareness and bring more attention to the disparity in care. Hmm. And so I started going through the seven summits and like trying to figure out how to fund it and paying for a lot out of my pocket. Um, but you know, as we get, going through the, through the climbs, you know, we generated a little bit of attention, but nobody's heard of Aconcagua. Like, it's just like, you know, like people are like, okay, that's cool. Um, but you know, Everest, you know, everybody's heard of Everest. Mm -hmm. They know that mountain and it's located in Nepal that have, has like little to no access to hemophilia care. And like the, that contrast is just so drastic, you know? 
So, you know, thinking about that, I was like, that's the one that we need to like make the the film about and make this story about, because I think that's where we'll be able to bring more attention to it. And so I reached out to my friend, Patrick, who also has hemophilia and is a filmmaker. And we, you know, I, I actually just shot him a message on Facebook because I didn't really know him personally, but I saw he was making film stuff for hemophilia. I was like, Hey man, I got this idea. <laughs> and we sat down at a conference and first time we met and I was like, Hey, you know, I want to do this. This is why I want to tell this story of the, you know, this, this dichotomy of, you know, having access and being able to do this climb to like just being born in a different country where Everest exists and never been able to dream of it. And he, he was sold and that's how this project started. And then we just chased, chased down funding and, and found funding, which was really cool. Huh. So the seven summits, you know, the film does spend the most time, you know, kind of on the Everest expedition, but I don't know, talk a little bit about the first, well, I guess the first five you did. Yeah. I mean, you're, you know, you're an athletic guy, competitive guy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> did you find some of those where you like, eh, this is actually a bit easier than I thought? Or what were some of the dynamics that you like discovered along the way? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I try to pick the mountains in like a strategic way to like build my experience level on, along the way too. So like Kilimanjaro is not the the hardest climb in the world, but I had never like infused at that elevation before. So I was like, I don't know how that's going to work. And so like, that was a good test for that experience. You know, I've, you know, my uncle Dave and I felt great on that whole, you know, it's mostly a hike it's, but it's beautiful. It's great. And so then I went to Aconcagua next a little more like expedition style, carrying your own stuff, which was awesome. And that's when I really knew I was like, Oh, this is, this is what I like to do. Like, I love that mental, physical, challenge of mountaineering. Um, and I was just so into it after Aconcagua. So that was cool. And then I went to Elbrus after that one, which was, which was cool. That was definitely like not my favorite climb. It was a cool experience, but like you like, you stay in these like old barrels. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It looks like big oil barrels, but like you, you you stay in those, you don't like actually get on the mountain to like sleep in tents and stuff. And I was just like, eh, that wasn't just my, like my favorite style. And then, uh, and then I got to go for Denali after that. And that, that mountain was just, uh, it was epic. I loved it. It was so hard, <laughs> um, but I loved like being on the mountain, carrying all your stuff, like, you know, just really having to work at it. And like, you had to learn so much to get ready for that mountain too, which I loved, you know, like the crevasse rescue stuff and mm-hmm. like the, the, you know, traveling on rope teams. Like I just loved it. It was so fun. And then Carson's pyramid and, uh, Papua was just like a rad, just out of the world experience, you know, like it's so remote to get to the, the climb was fun. It was like more rock climby scrambly, uh, which was cool. But the trek out through the jungle was just like the coolest part. Hmm. Uh, so we, we helicopter to the base camp, um, but we hi- hiked out through the, the, the jungle for like five days. And that was just the coolest part. It just felt like we were in the most remote place on earth. It was so cool. So that was really rad. <laughs> so of, of all of those, you said you only said Denali uh, was hard. And what was hard about Denali? Uh, you know, the, I think the hard part about Denali is like you're carrying like massive weight. The, the conditions are, you know, harsh, cold. 
you know, got dumped on with snow a couple times and just like continually hard climb too, you know, um, the conditions are just like constantly hard. And, but, but I think that's why I liked it the most too, just cause it was, it was just a constant challenge. And we also had a really awesome team on that, that climb, which I think made it even better. You know, I have a friend from Norway that I met on one of the climbs and like we became best friends and, you know, she was my tent mate and it was just super fun, you know? Um, so, and I think, you know, Denali was special too, because of my uncle Dave had done it in the nineties and he, his stories were what like inspired me hmm. uh, to get into this and like being on those same places was really special, you know? So yeah, but it was, it was hard. <laughs> well, I guess that brings us then to Everest. Yeah. You know, I look, people need to watch the film. The film documents this very, very well of the many interesting kind of elements about this. I guess there's two I, I want to touch on. One is the like, outpouring of support that you saw from folks with hemophilia around the world. And, you know, it was interesting, right? When when I first learned about you and about this film coming out, you know, I I always feel so bad saying this, but I'm like, man, hemophilia, that's something I haven't thought about, like in, you know, <laughs> like a yeah. long ass time, basically. And but then what this film does so effectively is bring you into the world. This community of people who live with this every single day don't have the luxury to kind of out of sight, out of mind this, right? And yeah. man, things get inspiring when you start seeing the cheering of people from around the world in this community. And I don't know, I guess... I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that and like, what was it? What do you think your attempt to climb the tallest mountain in the world, what was this doing for people? Yeah, you know, I I was actually a little nervous that people would be like, in our community even would be like, well, that's just nuts. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> but I think it was actually the opposite. I think, you know... Um, people were, were excited to see that somebody was trying this and chasing a dream that seemed super impossible. Even when I was born, you know, like people thinking of that would never think that's possible. And I think there's still a mindset, even with treatment that people, you know, live in bubbles and like, um, they can't challenge themselves and they can't push themselves. And I think I, I, I don't think climbing Everest is for everybody, whether you have hemophilia or not, yeah. but um, I think it was cool for people to, to expand their, their thoughts about what they could do. Um, and whether it's, you know, it, it doesn't have to be outdoors. It doesn't have to be climbing anything, but like, you know, you, despite having this condition, you can try for your dreams, you can try for your goals. And that was also part of the reason for picking Patrick to help me make this film. Cause he's a guy with hemophilia that is chasing his dream of making content and making films about about his bleeding disorder and about all sorts of stuff. And, uh, that was what I was hoping people would take away from that is not just the mountain, but, you know, not letting the hemophilia, um, tell you, you can't do something, you know, mm -hmm. um, figuring out ways to do it with your hemophilia. And it was cool that I think a lot of people resonated with that. I also do think the outdoors is a good place for people with bleeding disorders because there's so many different avenues to participate. You know, there's 
there is mountain biking, there's skiing, there's just hiking mellow trails, but it's so good for you uh, to be outside. And I wanted to open that world up to people too, with our condition, because I think they always thought it was very off limits to them. Um, So it's been cool to, it's been cool to see people like uh, expand that uh, into the outdoors, which is cool. I mean, (laughs) I, I just think in this big old world of ours, like in all of these different arenas, anytime you are doing something that is going to help expand that world of what's possible to any countless number of groups or people out there, that's like good on you work, you know? And like, we all need that. And um, it is so inspiring. And I, I think that, again, I think people that might watch this film one, you're going to learn a lot about this community, which I really appreciated doing. You always talk about, you call the community like your blood brothers. Yeah. And, yeah. but I think like, man, this just is such a cool way to get the wheels turning. I think for all of us, what kind of limits are we maybe putting on ourselves or what group am I a part of that maybe we think like, oh, I don't really belong there, or that's probably not within the realm of stuff I could or should be doing. And I just am always so inspired by anybody who's like moving those boundaries a bit. And that is something that comes across really palpably in the film. And I'm watching it and it literally, it's like for the community of people with hemophilia, you standing on top of Everest, it felt like watching people step onto the moon. It really did. It's like this, except like, I would assume in your case, it's actually harder to stand on Everest than like, if we actually shot you up into space on a spaceship, (laughs) that probably would be an easier, an easier effort, you know, in a lot of ways. And so super, super cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, yeah, it was cool to see that support from the community too. And like, uh, you know, I, I got tons of messages from like moms of people with like newborns with, with hemophilia and they were like terrified of what that meant or mm-hmm. young kids. And I think that was even more powerful for me was like, cause now they look at their kids as like, look at all the possibilities instead of look at all the limitations, which is great. And then, you know, the people in the developing countries that saw that, I think they, you know, they have a lot of challenges that they're overcoming but I'm, you know, what I've heard from them is like, now I know I need to push harder for improved care in my country huh. um, because there are better possibilities, you know, um, which is cool to hear too. So, um, yeah, and it, the community is so special, you know, they're, they're so uh, connected, even though we live in so many different places around the world, like, you know, social media is a, you know, pros and cons, yeah. but the pro is <laughs> we get to stay connected and um, meet people from all over the world. And it's, it's really cool. It's really, really cool. That's definitely another thing I was thinking about from this film is that l- recently, I think I've been, you know, like, I think we all kind of toggle a little bit between the pros and cons of social media. And I think yeah. I've recently found myself a bit more on the cons side of things and yeah. watching the way that this brings together a global community it's like, this is the best. This is the best side. 
you know, yeah. of these, these, this new technology or these, you know, ever evolving technologies that we have. I was like, man, if we can continue to weed out like the worst elements of social media and just keep using this kind of uh, seeing the, the best elements. But yeah, yeah. Uh, yet another thing from the film that was a takeaway <laughs> for me. Yeah. Yeah. I have to remind myself of that too, is like, there are pros to the, to the social media in, in, in that sense of staying connected and especially with the community like this, um, you know, but yeah, it's, sometimes it's hard. <laughs> you know. Do you have a sense then? So one big thing from the film is, again, I, I think it is like the single word is inspiring and not just for those who have hemophilia. Like, I, I hope I said this well, but I think for any of us in thinking about like, I don't know, maybe wouldn't be the worst way for us to be thinking like, what could I be doing to inspire a particular group, right? Or what could I be doing to just help, you know, help a particular group? I'd like to think we are all thinking that way. And I think this film serves as a nice catalyst for that. But can you talk a little bit more to about that other side? Like, has this served as a catalyst to get, whether it's factor or other forms of care or treatment, are we seeing an uptick in that? You know, get... Yeah. underserved communities, the better, better care and treatment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, since the, the films come out, you know, even in the U S you know, people didn't really know about what Save One Life did or what the global impact of uh, hemophilia has, you know, like, what does it look like in different countries? I don't think people here realize that. And that was part of the goal too, is like, Hey, you know, it looks drastically different around the world, you know, and we need to, be a part of this global community to help, you know, we need to be advocates and voices for these, these people that don't have them. And, uh, we have seen the, a lot more interest in, in, in donations to save on life, which has been really cool. Um, and we've been able to expand some programs and we've gotten new funding opportunities from places that we have never had, um, before, which is really cool. Um, and honestly, I think the film and, and the climb have, have opened up some doors for us. Um, and me personally to like step into rooms with people that don't know what hemophilia is. Mm -hmm. Um, don't, you know, have any clue about especially the global side and, um, you know, hopefully inspire them to like contribute, which is really, really cool. Yeah. So it's definitely expanded our, our presence, you know, and our, our way we can help in, in a pretty profound way, which is cool. And I'm hoping it just continues to grow. <laughs> yeah. Snowball. Yeah. I'm going to ask you more about save one life in a second here, but I have one sure. more Everest question. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I was curious about was you were the first person with hemophilia to summit. I, yeah. I, I don't know if you were the first person to ever, you know, spend time on Everest, but how much did you know? How confident were you that this would sort of be okay if you were getting your regular infusions? Because it seems like we see strong athletes all the time get on Everest and just blow up. Yeah. And we're like, not totally sure why that happened this time around, right? Like yeah. things, things get weird on Everest. They do, yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about your level of certainty or like how much of this was just you walking into a mystery. You know, I, I would say I was like 95% confident that if I had an issue on Everest, it wasn't going to be because of hemophilia. I, we didn't know like what that those crazy altitudes or like, you know, getting high altitude cerebral edema or, you know, 
high altitude pulmonary edema, like what that meant for somebody with hemophilia. We weren't like a hundred percent sure, but I would say I was like 95% because I had been on the other mountains up pretty high. And like, as far as the hemophilia side went, I felt pretty good about it. Was I confident I was going to make it to the summit? Not, not a hundred percent. You know, I don't think, I think if you think you're a hundred percent going to make it, like there's something wrong with you. Like that's not reality. Like it's, it's still, it's still Everest. It's still hard, you know? And so, but yeah, I think, you know, from my experience on other mountains and preparation with the, you know, Ryan from mountain professionals and my doctors and all of that, I felt really good that it wasn't going to be a hemophilia issue. If I had to turn around or it was an issue, it was not going to be hemophilia related. So, um, and luckily that's, that was the case, <laughs> you know, yeah. there, that 5% didn't, you know, didn't sneak up on us or anything, but you know, also we, you know, nothing out of the ordinary really happened on our climb, you know, it was, you know, it's hard and, you know, we had hard days and everything, but nothing like crazy unknown popped up for us, which is great, you know, for so. all the things that go wrong on Everest expeditions all the time. Like, yeah, it yeah. seems like you guys lucked into good windows and the rest, but yeah, yeah. I just wondered if there were doctors out there or, you know, things you were reading where it was like, dude, you are really rolling the dice here. Yeah, no, you know, never, you know, I talked to my hematologist and they were like, you know, we don't think that altitude's going to really change anything because, you know, it really is. I'm just missing a protein. It's yeah. not like, um, and I'm replacing that protein. So I should in theory be like everybody else, you know? Um, and obviously like it, that's not scientifically proven or anything, but you know, everything they thought it was like, you're probably going to be like everybody else up there. Um, so and luckily that, you know, I felt like mostly the case, except I had to carry extra stuff and, you know, infuse every once in a while, <laughs> but you know, and we, and we talked to the, you know, doctors at the ER at base camp too, you know, and let them know we were up that I was up there and like, this is, you know, what my factor looks like and walk through everything. And they were, you know, they were pretty cool about it, actually. <laughs> They're like, great, you know, thanks for letting us know. And <laughs> they had a lot of other things they were worried about. Not, not, not me, thankfully. <laughs> so. Yeah, something else, man. <laughs> so you've touched on Save One Life a bit. Can you give us any more of, I don't know, just an update on what Save One Life is up to right now? Kind of what things you might be looking at in terms of future initiatives or whatever, like how's it, how's it all? And I, I, by the way, you are right. Things are going to start snowballing, right? When people see this film, I I think you do have reason to uh, think there's going to be a, a wave of interest coming. So talk to me a little bit about this. Yeah. So Save One Life, as I mentioned, we're an international organization. We work in 14 developing countries right now. And we actually just added two countries last year. So that's, you know, part of, I think, the interest in the movie and and the story has led to opening up into a couple more countries, which is really cool. And we mainly focus on direct financial assistance to patients. So there is another hemophilia organization that works globally. They're called the World Federation of Hemophilia. And they they do a lot more of like the, you know, training doctors and hmm. helping expand infrastructure. But, you know, our founder noticed when she went on these trips to developing countries that a lot of patients are from such, you know, um, impoverished places that they couldn't even afford to get to the hospital 
you know, even if there was factor at the hospital, they couldn't pay for a bus ticket, you know, or mm-hmm. they couldn't afford to take two days off work to go to the hospital. Wow. Um, so it started out as like a child sponsorship program where you can, you know, um, sponsor a child and that funding helps them go, you know, take that trip to the hospital. It helps them stay in school, which is huge for them because most of them have pretty, phys- you know, uh, major physical disabilities by a really young age. Um, so it helps them stay in school and get an education, um, get that transportation to the hospital for factor when they have bleeds, um, which is cool. And since then we've expanded into a different, a few different places. So now we do educational scholarships to help them get more advanced educations and get into good careers, which has been really cool. Um, because those guys have, uh, since like graduated, gotten good jobs and now are leading their local hemophilia organizations and helping build care there, which is good. And then we also help, uh, you know, um, with funding to help start small businesses for people that maybe weren't able to just finish school because they have of their hemophilia and they weren't diagnosed to very late, but they need a way to like help support themselves. So we help them figure that out. But we also do a donation of medication also. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're pretty unique in the sense that we collect medicine from people here in the U.S. that maybe they've switched to a new product huh. or they, um, you know, uh, changed their dose so they can't use what they have. Um, and instead of wasting it, throwing it away, they um, they send it to us and we send it to uh, countries all over the world um, that people need it. So we've sent to like 30 countries this year wow. already, which is cool. We've sent like millions of units of factor, which is like equivalent to millions of dollars worth of, you know, factor to different countries. And it's really an emergency basis. So we, we, we send it to countries that have zero access. So we're, we're like the only thing that they have, which is really cool. So, you know, and we're trying to grow that program too, which is cool, but yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy in the COVID world. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's the other thing that we're trying to figure out right now is how do we help our help these families in, in this pandemic when uh, a lot of their jobs have disappeared or they're not working right now because of lockdowns and there's no government stimulus checks coming their way. Um, they're literally you know not making anything right now. So we're trying to start a program to address that too. And so we're looking to that. We're actually right now we're looking at how to how to get get them more help considering their whole income has disappeared so yeah it's a tricky tricky year um yeah it's tough hmm. but looking good <laughs> you got a few things on your plate and your work cut out for you it sounds like yeah yeah it's it's been you know the first year last year as executive director was like learning the ropes of being in that role and i ha- i felt like i had a great plan for this year and then it just yeah blew up, but you know, we're, we're adapting really well. Uh, we did this like at home Everest challenge in, uh, April to like people did their stairs 29 times, um, you know, for the 29,000 feet of Everest, which was pretty fun. And then, uh, there's actually a kid that has hemophilia that is hiking the AT trail this year and raising funds for save one life, which was a cool surprise. So we're, we're getting creative and figuring stuff out and, you know, <laughs> it's it's a tricky year, though. That's for sure. Hmm. So, where should people go if they want to learn more about Save One Life? Perhaps make a donation. Like, where where should we direct people? Yeah, uh, people can visit saveonelife.net to find out all about our programs, and uh, you know, we have a lot of information on there about where we work and yeah, all the different programs we have, um, which is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a cool cool website check it out. And we have like uh, all the social media channels too. 
Um, so people can follow us on all the different channels. It's just Save One Life, I think, is how you can find it. Well, hey, man, it's been a pleasure, this conversation and the film, and kind of, I, I'm just really grateful to, like, in part to learn about your own personal story. And like I said, I, I told you before we started recording, like I felt kind of this kinship. You were like the, you were like the dumb kid baseball player. And I was like the dumb <laughs> kid football player. And we all kind of found our ways around into different elements, but, uh, but to both kind of watch your own trajectory and growth and to get to learn more about this community, this was a very good part of my last week and really appreciate the time today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you enjoyed the film and, and, and yeah, that you connected with it. That's cool to hear. And uh, I'm very proud of it and yeah, proud of the work I get to do and just very honored. So thank you so much. By the way, the one thing I forgot to say is we need to do a shout out to your wife, Jess. No kidding. Yeah. Because... <laughs> She's a saint and <laughs> you don't deserve her. And that was crazy <laughs> that she was putting up with all your stuff and uh, oh, yeah. un unbelievable. Yeah. But yeah, shout out, <laughs> shout out to your mom and shout out to Jess because yeah. they, yeah, you're, you're a lucky man to have both of those women. Yeah. I am so, so lucky. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. Very thankful for Jess. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, hey, man, I'm going to let you get going. Really good luck with, with all the stuff you've got on your plate and the pushing forward the mission for Save One Life. The film comes out August 18th, and it's called Bombardier Blood. People can look for it on all the different digital platforms, and I can't wait for people to see it. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Awesome. You take care. Right, you too. Well, that's it for today's episode. Thanks so much to Chris for the conversation. And be sure to check out the new film, Bombardier Blood, online starting tomorrow. And be sure also to go take a look at saveonelife.net to learn more about the work going on there. Also, remember that you can catch more great conversations over on our other podcast channels, including Off the Couch, which tomorrow we drop a new, I'd call it a rather irreverent episode. This Thursday, Bikes and Big Ideas, which I am extremely excited for you all to check out that episode. And then this Friday, Gear 30, back by popular demand, it's Moment Ski's CEO, Luke Jacobson where we do our annual thing walking through the new lineup. So that's what we've got on tap for this week on the other channels. And then we will be right back here on the Blister Podcast next Monday. Now, I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will be talking to you again real soon.